we're not really doing online learning. What we're doing is emergency remote teaching. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. Measuring success in education is a whole lot more difficult because that is really about values. What makes education companies successful is properly solving the problems of teachers, learners and institutions. Welcome to the Beyond Capital podcast. In our purpose-driven world, leadership is increasingly crucial. Now, more than ever, stakeholders are demanding the integration of social values and causes in everything from shoes to soap to investment. We are bringing you the stories of leaders that are marrying profit with purpose. I'm Eva Yazari, CEO of Beyond Capital. And I'm Ed Stevens, CEO of Appreciate. And this is the Beyond Capital podcast. Today's guest is Nick Kind. Nick is the Senior Director of Titan Partners, and this is going to be a special episode on the future of education. Titan Partners is an advisory and strategy consulting firm specializing in education. Nick focuses on impact investment, venture philanthropy, and other investment projects in education and the future of work. He previously ran an education software company, worked in publishing at the Holtzbrink Group, and was a Senior Vice President at Area 9 a personalized learning platform. Welcome, Nick. Very nice to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. Before we dive into your thoughts on education and technology now, I would love to talk about your background. As Ed mentioned, you have worked in education for a while and have had a passion for that space. What motivated you to pursue a career in education? What really motivated me was my own education, actually. Um, I mean, I was privileged and lucky enough to go to um, Eton College, probably one of the most famous schools in the world. And whilst it was actually a mixed experience for me, um, the the quality of the actual education I received was sufficient to give me a real passion for it and to want to be involved in it for the rest of my life. My brother-in-law actually went to Eton as well. I think in the U.S. we know a little bit less about it, but I mean, He's brilliant, I'm sure, and and I've heard um, through our common connection that you are as well, and I know that um, it is a very, very high quality of education. You then ran a a major educational company in the UK. Again, thinking a little bit more about your background, it's called Spark Learning. It produces software and content for young children. It probably at the time was a little bit ahead of the curve, but how did you get involved with that and how did that early experience shape your future career? I went to university, did an English degree, but spent quite a lot of time inside the university newspaper and sort of became increasingly interested in in the sort of place where publishing met digital met education and I was lucky enough quite quickly to go into educational publishing I, I had one job before I went into educational publishing and educational software in fact it was I was lucky enough to put the complete works of Shakespeare online while I was there that was part of a school book publisher I, I built a couple of projects but was then caught in a kind of corporate crossfire if you like, one part of the company was being sold, the other wasn't. And I was approached by a previous senior executive at Pearson to co-found this company, which we ended up calling Spark Learning. This was the white heat of the 1999.com boom. We suddenly became the new masters of the universe. It was honestly an offer I couldn't refuse. It was fascinating. It was, you know, the grooviest job on the planet to have right then. Although we sort of went from slightly from hero to zero in a, in a very quick period of time. But it, look, it was a fascinating opportunity. 
opportunity to really get to grips with how the technology might actually impact learning, how it might impact, you know, the, the way that both parents and teachers and relatively young kids, I mean, you know, in, in US terms, we were K to six, um, might interact with the technology. So just from a technology standpoint, I think it'd be fun to kind of anchor everybody. What was the coolest feature? <laughs> yeah, what was the coolest feature that you had back then that today might be like, wow, really? That was the cool. But what was the coolest feature that you were really excited about? And this was in the time of dial up modems, flash four, Netscape Navigator. I mean, we, we, we were really at the early the early, early stage. So the coolest thing that we had really was animated characters. I mean, I know that sounds like a kind of a bit of a no brainer nowadays, but sparkisland.com is still there and still free and, and people can go and visit it and look at it and it'll look pretty kludgy to a, to a quote modern audience, if you like. But, you know, trying to create a cartoon world like experience, which is what we try online was a pretty unusual thing to be doing at that time. That was, if you like, the grooviest thing we were doing and trying to give those characters character, if you like. And so the, the site that's still up, you said, is called Spark Learning Island? So the company was called Spark Learning. The, the product was called Spark Island. And um, I basically, I mean, there's a very long story here, but I, I eventually bought the company back from the investors, ran it as a development shop, really, a very high production values development shop for publishers and broadcasters, people like the BBC. But I eventually just have put the site up for free because there are actually still even 20 years later, crikey, you know, even 20 years later, people are still using it. And so I want to be able to, to be able to use it. Yeah. It's funny how those things, those years add up. I just was looking at Twitter the other day and one of my friends tweeted empire strikes back is 40 years old. Wow. <laughs> Titan, we have a, um, we have just to, to kind of help us through the, the coronavirus kind of isolation, we have a number of kind of Slack channels running, which are very much about fun. And there were a couple about, you know, the top 10 movies you didn't see because you were under five. <laughs> and I realized that I, 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 which was nice. I mean, we had a really, really brilliant eclectic mix across the business. And, and I realized that I, I saw Star Wars when I was five. Yep. Right. So, so, you know, that, that dated me this year, this, this week's totally incidentally is brilliant because it's top five tunes of the 1990s, which is when I went to college. So I was well into that very quickly. Okay. So plenty of material there to work from. <laughs> My son is actually watching all the, the early Star Wars and, and he watched one of the first and he looked at me and he said, mama, what happens when the empire strikes back? And it's very, very <laughs> sweet. But just to segue, so I have young children. My daughter is a baby, so she doesn't really know that what's happening at the moment, but we're living in a time where education is being transformed out of necessity for distance learning, also could be called homeschooling. I had an extremely vivid dream one night where some large technology company had created the perfect online classroom because the reality is, as much as we love Zoom, it's not working for kids. And I think that there are some definite, definite pain points that I could probably become an expert for, for some educational technology company to point out. And so I don't want to dive in too fast because your, your whole career is fascinating, Nick, but just jumping from Spark and what you learned there and what you're seeing now or what is, what is capable now from a technology standpoint, what are you seeing and can you shed light on you know, what's possible that goes beyond the cartoon characters of, of the time where you were working in the late 90s. The important thing to, to say about where we are today is that if you were a passionate 
person about you know education and how it should work and, and fascinated by the possibilities of the technologies that we now have you really wouldn't have designed this transition the way that everybody has had to experience it and that, that's a super important point i mean there was an article in in a sort of industry publication the other day which says that you know we're not really doing online learning what we're doing is emergency remote teaching and i think there's a lot of truth in that the possibilities of the technologies that we, I mean, even that we had then, right, you know, uh, let alone the ones that we have now, don't come to their full fruition, don't work well. If you've got teachers, parents and kids who are unprepared, you haven't got the right devices in place and everybody's rushing at stuff, you you really wouldn't have designed it this way. So I, I think that's a really, really important thing to say about this. There are some amazing things we can do now. And perhaps later on, we can we can dive into why some of those things even previously weren't being used to their fullest potential because of the nature of our current education systems. But the trouble we've got right now is that the, the, we wouldn't have designed it this way. I have experienced my son. He's in university in the US and he was home during part of the COVID thing. And we had the opportunity to watch some of his lectures by Zoom. And I thought that the lecturer was terrible. Mm. And so I, to me, the one of the elephants in the room nobody wants to talk about is when the distribution of information can be scaled much greater over technology, over computers. And why do we have bad lecturers anymore? When I understand why we had them 50 years ago, because there had to be somebody in the room spreading the information and you just kind of got the best lecturer you could and the best universities had the best lecturers and the worst universe, I mean, just sort of as a general rule. And so I, I think that that quality of teaching could be one of the really big improvement points, but it's a hard one to get people to talk about. I think there are, there are a couple of issues in there. I think, I mean, you know, of course you're right, but there's, 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 there's two things. First of all, a lecture is often a compelling experience because a really great lecture is a piece of theater, right? Mm -hmm. And what, what really matters in a piece of theater is actually you being in the room at the time. You know, there is nothing that can replicate that as we are all discovering right now you know i'm greatly missing going to live entertainment for that sense of reality and and almost jeopardy that something might go wrong the intimacy that that's implied in that right so even a video lecture is not particularly great to start with however great a lecturer you have and that kind of brings me on to the second point you know one of the things that just hasn't changed over the, the 25 and odd years that i've been in digital technology and that i learned more and more and more as i developed more and more digital products around the world and then and then moved into sort of advising companies and and and, uh, and investors and so on, on on where this does and doesn't work is it's kind of quite straightforward in a way and it's like right medium right application print is really great if you've got to absorb complicated fact relatively quickly right sitting there there's nothing that replaces sitting and reading a paper if you've got to do that to tell a story video is great lectures shouldn't you should, video lectures are in a, in a way a bit of an anomaly you should have a really compellingly edited documentary right? Mm -hmm. Because that's a much better way of doing it. You know, a podcast can be brilliant for certain things. Interactive quizzes are great for certain things. Simulations are brilliant for certain things. It's all about finding the right blend of those things to deliver the learning outcomes that you want your learners to get to, rather than slavishly thinking, if you like, that it's all got to be a technology solution. I mean, this is this is one of, one of my big mantras around this. I, it's, and I've, I've 
say this a lot to people is a right medium right product but b there's a challenge around technology technology is just a tool to deliver an outcome and it's the way that you use those tools that matter and it's what i call the carrot and a piece of string problem a really really brilliant teacher can deliver a fabulous lesson on just about anything with a carrot and a piece of string and a bad teacher will struggle to deliver a great and compelling lesson with as much technology as he or she might encounter. And I think that's the really, really important thing about this. Technology is just a tool. Does this mean that the educational planning component is more important? In other words, if we are continuing distance learning into the fall, which a number of universities have already announced, that there there should be a better thought through curriculum that includes different styles of learning I guess, however you call it, at home or, you know, not on campus or not at the actual school. I don't want to do the the, the, the teachers, and, and which I include, you know, university, right from university faculty through to, you know, people grappling with, with two or three-year-olds at pre-K. Generally speaking, a really great teacher has thought about exactly what you're talking about within the context of the, the resources and, and other facilities that they've got in their bricks and mortar environment. Nobody had the time to think about what they were going to do when they were told that within you know a week they were going to be teaching online. This is clearly an opportunity for institutions to think through how they might approach the fall. And again, those are very, very contextual decisions. You know, I'm, I've been reading this morning that different universities around the world have been making a bunch of different decisions. Some have chosen to go entirely online. Some have chosen to invite their students back within uh, all the safety guidelines that they can do. My own um, university, Cambridge University, has decided to put all of its lectures online for people to view, but nevertheless will continue on with the sort of trademark aspect of, a, of a, a, an Oxford and Cambridge education, which is about small group tutorials, which will happen face to face and people will be back in that university environment whenever they can be. So this, undoubtedly, this is a place to think through how that full educational experience might play out. And indeed, it's also an, uh, an opportunity to think through how it might look going forward, whatever, and if technology has a role to play as we encounter the new world that we're undoubtedly going into. So you're based in the UK. I think you're in Oxfordshire. I am. As somebody who misses being on the other side of the Atlantic, I can imagine where you are right now. My husband went to Oxford to spend some time there. But you also do business in the US. So are you seeing trends or different approaches between the US and the UK in terms of education when you're working with various different clients at Titan Partners? Yes and no. And, and I and I broaden that out also into into the sort of the work that I do around education, lifelong learning, if you like, in terms of workforces. I think I mean looking at this from an impact point of view, there are different traditions of philanthropy on our two different sides of the Atlantic, and and that plays out differently in Europe and and the US. And and I am afraid I'm unapologetically a very passionate European, even though I sit in in the UK. You know, we have a tradition over here of a much, what I would argue is a much stronger social safety net. And that means that in many cases, 
philanthropists think differently to where they are in the US where you know your social safety net is is not quite as strong and people feel that they need individually to step up and support people so i think that that's a big issue between particularly impact investors uh, in the US and it means that the impact investment ecosystem in the US in education and i would argue more broadly is much more and I use this word advisedly, but much more sophisticated in its approach. Europe tends to be very, very binary. It tends to be we invest money for profit and we give away money for good. And there's a much more nuanced approach that we've seen, particularly amongst US investors, around deploying money in, in a real spectrum of, way, of ways across education and education companies, education organizations, you know, advocacy, all of that. Uh, it in a much more, I would argue, much more thought through way that we, we've, we've seen in the US. And that's some of the stuff that we try and talk about with, with people um, over on this side of the Atlantic. That makes sense. So let's talk a little bit about Titan Partners and what you do, because we've, we've, we've been eager to hear your thoughts just on educational trends and where education is going. And I'm sure there, there's more that you can tell us there. Part of your work is helping clients, whether they're governments or investors or nonprofits, really understand the nuances of being successful financially and from a social impact perspective. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I mean a few things, and this will draw on some of my my previous experience as well. I mean, look, the, the most exciting project for me in in this space that that we've been working on for the past a little over a year is is working with I mean a, a wealthy family office based on the East Coast of America, who have a very, I think in American terms, a very progressive vision of where they want education to go. And we came in and helped them think through how that might play out in a program of impact investments, really working hard with them to define what success looked like and making that success happen. And I think you know, one of the most interesting aspects of, of impact investment work in education is that I think it is materially different to other types of impact investment for a very particular reason. And that reason is that traditionally impact investment has, has, has focused on um, healthcare and has focused on the environment and, and perhaps on other things. It's relatively easy to measure success in both of those areas. You know, there are clear empirical medical outcomes in healthcare. We can measure parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Measuring success in education is a whole lot more difficult because that is really about values and engaging with how you bring those values into a rigorous investment framework is fascinating and challenging. I think when you look at the U.S. higher education system today, there is a discrepancy between what we're educating a lot of people for and what the best opportunities are for them in future work. We don't have much of a trade education system here in the U.S. And we send a lot of people to the universities to get English degrees. I was a Russian literature major, by the way. I was an English major, just so that you know. I know. You said that <laughs> earlier. <You> said that. <laughs> right. But there's a lot of people who aren't going to uh, focus on higher education or aspects of of a liberal arts degree, and we don't have enough trade education here. Um, I'm wondering, as you as you think about outcomes in education, do you think about trade education, or are you, are we sticking just to sort of like the higher education side of things? 
No, 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 no. We, we, we spend a lot of time thinking about that. And, and indeed, you know, one of our other clients is a an organization called the UFI VocTech Trust over here in the UK, who are a foundation very much focused on exactly that area of what we in the UK call um, vocational education. Right. Absolutely a crucial part of, of our work and, and an area that I am very, very passionate about and very, very interested in. Brief sort of tangent before we, we cover that, though, I wouldn't want to get away from the fact that, you know, the value of a university education is not just about employability, right? We all know that there are plenty of other things that universities deliver to society and for their students. So I'm not trying to imply here, just to be clear, that there isn't other social value that you derive from university. Having said that, there is clearly a crisis of value in higher education that we're seeing, particularly in the US, I would say, but also across the world. And we're also seeing plenty of students emerging from whatever sort of course with unfit for the jobs that are growing and which exist. You know, the future of work is coming on as fast and arguably because of this COVID-19 pandemic, it's coming at us even faster. And designing systems and courses which help those students and indeed adults who are perhaps losing jobs. And we're in a situation obviously when so many people are very regrettably losing jobs at the moment, I think is, you know, it's the second most pressing thing we face in our world right now, you know, after after a long-term thing. I mean, obviously the most pressing thing we face right now is, is dealing with coronavirus. Then I would argue it's climate change. But then actually making sure we're fit for the future of work is, for me, coming very closely after those two. Don't you think that measuring outcomes with improvements in trade or vocational education is a good starting point. It seems like it would be easier to measure outcomes there than it would be in some other aspects. In a way it is, Ed, in a way it isn't. Because I think what, what sometimes get lost gets lost in this debate is that one person's idea of a, quote, good job is not necessarily another person's. So, you know, some people think that it's all about earning a, a very high salary. Some people are prepared to trade off. You know, and, and of course, they need to earn. And I'm not saying that people don't need to earn a proper living wage here, again, just to be clear. But, you know, some people want to trade off lifestyle, want to trade off family, want to trade off other commitments against income. So measure, so some of the measures are actually quite hard. I, I personally believe, you know, it's, it's what the people themselves, what the student themselves perceive as a good job or as a better job, rather than necessarily imposing certain ideas on them, because there are actually, I think, real nuances in there. But yes, you're right. If we can find good ways of measuring those employability outcomes, I completely agree with you, but I think there's a nuance in it. Yeah, I wasn't thinking incomes. Um, I was thinking more like tenure and retention and perhaps time spent searching for work or the amount of time it takes for a company to fill a position, mainly just tenure, you know, and retention would sort of assuming that people know something about what they want to be doing. If they stay at a current job, they're probably happier than if they leave. You're almost exactly illustrating the challenge, which is, you know, if, you, if, you're, if you're coming into this situation, you say, okay, I want to really make my money work in education. And I believe that it's all about employability outcomes. You suddenly have to really dig into what those employability outcomes are and what's success for you, such that you then have a really clear idea of how you might then be able to, to put your money to work most effectively. It's, it's these type of debates that you and I just happen to be having almost organically out of this conversation, which is very much the substance of what we get involved in doing. Cool. So I've lived in Switzerland in the past, and I've always been completely fascinated with their vocational training system. Essentially, you go to high school or not, 
based on whether you meet certain educational standards and, and testing and have certain test scores. And if you don't, you are put into a program to train to work at a telephone company or to be a plumber. And, and in the past, actually, to be a banker. You did not have to go to high school. You went through a vocational training program. I just want to just also just maybe finish up this idea, since we have you and your wealth of knowledge, Nick, in asking what's behind this kind of fundamental divide between the U.S. and Europe, because it's, it's clearly a big gap in terms of thinking. Is it culture? Is, is it something deeper? I would love to hear your thoughts on that. There isn't, in fact, as much of a divide as, as some people make out, I would say. I mean, I, a couple of years ago, I did a big review of vocational training systems around the world for the Ministry of Education of a, of a Middle Eastern government. And everywhere, including in German-speaking countries, there is snobbery about vocational training. You know, vocational training is viewed as, quote, second class. Some people, some countries are much better at delivering vocational training than others, not just Switzerland, but also Germany and particularly the Nordic countries. The snobbery is, is more or less present in most of those places. There are exceptions. And those cultures who have managed to transition to what I would describe as a different idea of success are perhaps the ones that I would would say we really need to look up to. So yes, in in the US, actually in the UK very much as well, it's viewed as second class. But I, I don't think there's as much of a, regrettably, in many ways, Europe is not quite as um, gung-ho about it. They're just better at executing on it with the systems that we have. The thing that I believe most around this whole reform of education and what the future should look like, if we can redefine success, if we can think about that the, the purpose of education is to allow an individual to fulfill their potential, whatever it may be, and not judge that in some of the ways that we judge it right now, I think that that would be a, a really fabulous outcome. Well, speaking of not judging, let's take a twist here and talk about one of our favorite subjects here on the Beyond Capital podcast, which is to dig a little bit into you and just kind of understand what motivates you and how you get started. So we always ask our guests how they get their day started to get ready to change the world. So we're curious to know, <laughs> how do you do that? I mean, Ava, Ava, Ava has some sense of, of where I live. So I, I live um, in a small village between the cities of Reading and Oxford in the countryside. And I live in the countryside uh, in a place where the Chiltern Hills hit the Thames. So it's a, a really, really beautiful place. So my start to the day is almost invariably getting outside into nature, right? And that's a run, it's a bike ride, it's a walk with the dog. Yesterday, I had a lovely walk with the dog with my daughter. That is for me absolutely essential. And if I don't do that, I'm sort of, frankly, I'm generally grumpy and ineffective. Well, we're glad you went outside today then. This <laughs> <laughs> will be a Absolutely. much better podcast. How about what gets you fired up? Coffee, tea, or caffeine free? Oh, so one very strong cup of coffee after I'm back from the walk and that's it. And then, then there's no more coffee for the rest of the day. But of course, being a Brit, I have to have tea at four o'clock in the afternoon. Now, Eva is like a With coffee. With milk and sugar? No, no um, depends on the tea, actually, Eva. Earl Grey tea, no milk. English breakfast tea, definitely milk, never sugar. But ideally, you know, some nice sweet thing baked by either my daughter or my wife next to it. Well, Eva's an expert in coffee. She tries every different kind of coffee trend that's out there. Mushroom coffee, this morning, <laughs> bulletproof Ooh. coffee, right? I've even traveled with packets that make your 
any coffee, bulletproof coffee. I wouldn't say I'm an expert though. I'm not one of those people that knows what the right beans are. I outsource that to my husband. Coffee's a good part of the morning for me too. I pretty much drink tea. I think that says something about your stage of, of this, of the pandemic and, uh, and, and mindset as well. I think we make choices based on, on where we are, especially in a time like this. But I wanted to, Nick, circle back to education. You know, for me at Beyond Capital, we have found that it's been hard to find models in developing countries at early stages where we invest that are profitable in education. So we have, for the past 10 years, actively not focused on education, even though it's a core value of mine, mine and my husband. My husband's a Baha'i and education is very important yep. um, to that, Absolutely. that space. And so, and they've got some really fascinating models, but perhaps this is a, this is a thought or, or a theory that you can debunk. I mean, I assume that you're working with clients and foundations and educational institutions that are profitable, but what are the components that allow for an educational company to be profitable? Yes, we are. And yes, it is really hard to find, I would say, meaningful models, particularly in the developing world. And I think that before I go into the the sort of the guts of your question, one of the big things that we're seeing right now is that there are plenty of educational companies in in the developing world who are making a lot of money and then have unicorn valuations, but which I would argue in some people's impact terms are not necessarily making the differences that some people might like to see. You know, they're usually test prep companies. They're companies which are preparing middle class or, or wealthier kids for high stakes exams to get them into the universities of their choice. They are not materially progressing the existing systems we have. So I think that's an interesting nuance. What makes education companies successful is properly solving the problems of teachers, learners and institutions. And there's a real risk that people get obsessed by technology first rather than problem. And that's really the difference. So, you know, we got Spark Learning wrong in 1999, 2000, because we thought that the technology was marvelous, but we didn't properly engage with the fact that we were too early for where the teachers were through no fault of the teachers and too early for, for the te- technology to deliver reliably enough for those teachers to know that when they went into a classroom full of seven-year-olds, it wouldn't necessarily fail. And there's nothing worse than being in full of a, in a classroom in, in educational terms, you know, being in a classroom where suddenly the technology fails on you and, and, and you're left with nothing to do. We got that wrong. You know, we, we pivoted the business. We became a developer of educational software for, for third parties where we did an awful lot of work understanding what works. And I think that's the crucial thing. You know, the company's got to solve a really clear problem for its customers and not rocket science, but it's extraordinary how much you find that that doesn't happen. I think as in many other areas of impact investment, I I suspect that you've come across this, you know, when people are motivated by passion for an area, sometimes they feel that their experience of that area is, is the most informative. That's particularly the case in education because everybody's had an education and lots of people have had, have been successful, feel that their education was the best one that everybody else should have for entirely sensible and understandable reasons in many ways. But that generally isn't the case. So you've got to be really, really rigorous about looking at the evidence and looking at your users and the problem you're trying to solve. And that will yield, you know, successful education companies wherever you are. Excellent. Thank you. So to wrap up, I want to tell you about my son's favorite book, which is a series called If I Built a House, If I Built a School. And I believe it was written decades ago. And it's a futuristic vision 
of what a house and what a school would look like in the future. Of course, you know, a very unrealistic type of vision uh, in terms of technology and, you know, skydiving towers and school cafeterias that make lunches and whatever you want to eat automatically and things like that. It's, it's, it's a silly approach, but it's left an impression on him and, and certainly on me over the past couple of weeks. I would love uh, just to hear in closing one or two things that you think that will become mainstays in education that are starting to crop up now during this period through the lens of your work. Hmm. Small question. What is the future of education? I don't mean to throw a curveball. Yeah. In, in essence, what is the future of education? I'd approach that in two ways. I mean, what I would really love to see, as I say, is, is, an, is, a, is an education system where we redefine success such that children can really fulfill their own individual potential. That doesn't mean that they shouldn't work with each other, by the way, that, you know, a crucial part of, of any education should be collaboration. For me, a school of the future is one in which the technology is absolutely supporting the teaching and learning process and the relationships that really drive teaching and learning. And it becomes almost seamlessly invisible to a really, really well-designed process allowing the kids to pursue their passions, allowing the teachers to have really, really informed views on what the children can and can't do and where they need help, but with the teacher and the learner at the center of them. I think that's the first thing. And what that requires, and this is this is what I would really love to happen, is for governments around the world to engage with what education now can and should look like, given the way that technology is changing the world and the, the way that technology can change education. And I don't think that there are very, very few governments around the world who are materially engaging with that issue. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Nick, for your time. It's been a pleasure to speak with you and we're grateful for the wealth of knowledge that you've brought to this conversation for our audience. Uh, it's really terrific to speak to you both. I really, really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for coming today. Bye. Once again, it's clear that a business leader with good intentions can create an impressive social, environmental, and ethical impact. There is always a way to put meaning behind the mission of a company, and we can all make a difference. You've taken the first step by listening to the Beyond Capital podcast. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget to rate, review, and if you haven't yet, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. For more information, go to beyondcapitalpodcast.com. You can follow me on Twitter at EA Stevens. And follow me on Instagram at Conscious Investor. Until next time. Bye, everyone.